everybody has to have a purpose in, in whatever job you do, whatever role, whatever vertical, you, you've got to kind of feel a sense of purpose and a sense that you're contributing to whatever your business is that you're in. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, our podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, we're talking with Colin Bannister. Colin is the VP of Solutions Engineering for us here at VMware in Europe, Middle East and Africa, and he's the champion of VMware's degree apprenticeship programme. Colin talks to us about mentorship, learning on the job, and how to find, cultivate, and support new talent within the industry. Welcome, Colin. Great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So can you give us a quick intro about you and your role? Yeah, sure. So I'm hugely privileged. Um, I I love my job. I'm Vice President of Solution Engineering for Europe, Middle East, and Africa here at VMware. And I'm privileged because I have over 800 of the, uh, the smartest people on the planet in my team helping our customers kind of leverage VMware technology for their business benefit. They make me look good every day. So I've got a great team. <laughs> All right. So uh, from a career perspective, then, how did you end up here? Purely by accident. I don't know if that's the right answer, or the wrong answer, but it's the honest answer. So uh, I, I was kind of reflecting that uh, this is my 41st year in the IT industry, which just makes me uh, feel very old sometimes. But it's still a rel- relatively young industry compared to many, so uh, including financial services that we kind of get to. But yeah, I got into to IT by accident at uh, my mother bullying me as I finished my first year at university. She didn't want me sitting around for six weeks doing nothing. So she suggested I go get a job. And uh, I ended up getting a job in IT just as a summer job, but it went a little bit more permanent than that. Okay. So when did you realise that you wanted a career in IT? Is that that time? Well, it, it was at that time. I kind of successfully finished my first year of my degree, which was in geology, of all things, from geology to RT. There's a bit of a transformation. And uh, at that time, you know, as I say, it was a long time ago, but, uh, you know, it was the formative days of computing. And, and back then, you know, in schools, IT wasn't even taught. So I'm, I'm, I'm aging myself somewhat. But uh, uh, so, so computing was this... Uh, this radical new industry that just looked really exciting. And kind of when I got into it, as I say, by accident, it was the place to be. You know, it was exciting and transformative and something I'd never considered. But uh, the rest is kind of history in many senses. <laughs> so so how did you end up here then? So um, I, I think university, and we'll kind of get onto skills a little bit later, I think. University wasn't particularly for me. It wasn't the exciting adventure that I was looking for. And uh, so I think, you know, when the, the prospect of, of earning good money, which clearly it was even back in those days, was a very attractive proposition to a student who'd just come off a, a year at university. So uh, it has been a really exciting journey, which I, I guess we can touch on a l- little bit more. But uh, as I say, you know, it wasn't in, an intended career decision, but it's been very, very good to me. I, and I think you've got some FS lurking in the past there, right? I do. Yes, yes. I think, you know, the first 15 years of of my career was working on the other side. So, you know, working for retailers, big chunk for financial services, working for uh, both a Canadian bank and a UK bank. So I spent the first 15 years on the consumer side of IT, if you like, in in many senses, before switching for the last 26 years working on the vendor side or the the sales side. So, yes, I did spend a a significant amount of time working for one of the UK's Big financial institutions, so yes. Right, okay. We're not doing COBOL questions today. Oh, Assembler. To... Assembler was my Assemb- Oh, yeah, there you go. I'll, I'll, I'll go know. back even further. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hardcore. There we go. Well, I mean, here's, here's a funny story, which uh, which I, I don't know is applicable at this point, but some of that Assembler code that I developed all those years ago is still running in production. 
Uh, oh my goodness. Ra- rather, rather um, worryingly for uh, for some organisations. But <laughs> yeah, wow. So I think my COBOL isn't running anymore, and I, I really hope that my C isn't running any further. And I don't. Th- well, that's not a call I'm going to look forward to. Okay, so looking back then, Colin, what would you think was your career defining moment? That's a real tough one. It may still be yet to happen. Who knows? You know, it's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> We've never had that answer before. <laughs> well, and you're so young into your career. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll let you know what happens. There was kind of two defining moments for me in my career. You know, one was that pivot from from being on the consumer side of IT to the sales side. I think that that was a really interesting transition and and taught a whole raft of new skills that I never had working on the consumer side. So it was a real eye opener that pivot from one to the other. Which I know you guys have made as well, so you, you've kind of experienced that yourself. So that was one. I think the the other bit that was really pivotal to me and how I kind of ended up in the role I'm in now is that you know Colin Colin's got an opinion on everything, and uh, and I found for a while that no, nobody was listening to Colin's opinion, and so I kind of got into leadership roles as much to have more influence than authority. You know, sometimes that, that's just kind of strange thing to say, but it's always been the thing that's driven my career is an aspiration to influence, not authority. So the size of the team is kind of irrelevant. It's having influence over the organization, the direction of the company has always been close to me. And, you know, just we're, we're life learners, aren't we? Every day we learn something new. It's a, it's a great industry we're in for, for that, from that perspective. That's a great start for us. Uh, let's get into the topic that we're here to talk about today. Let's uh, get into our deep dive. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. Okay, so um, Colin, uh, we thought it'd be really useful to talk about advice you can particularly give in what it takes to run a team of 800 plus super talented, super marketable, super technical, super, super. And you know what advice you can kind of give to your peers in other industries around you know the way you think about that from a tech firm culture to perhaps an fs culture or or anywhere else what what does it take to kind of attract retain develop that technical talent it's a great question and 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 i think you know if, if i go back in history why did i join an fs company in the first place you know back when i was on that consumer side why did i go and work for it for a bank and when i reflect back on those days it was the place to be in it you know, if you wanted to go and work on the latest, the coolest, the best technology, go work for a bank. They were renowned. And I know it was a long time ago, but back in the day, that was the place. If you wanted the latest skills in, on your CV and get access to all the latest and greatest, that was go work for a bank. And that kind of was my motivation at the time. That was the place to go and work. And and and, and kind of when I fast forward to today and, and reflect on my team and and we could debate, you know, I think it's an interesting debate as to whether, whether financial services organisations still have that attraction. I'm sure to some degree they do, but given that every single business sector and vertical is driven by technology, you know, arguably it doesn't have that preeminent position anymore in, uh, in being the sole place to go and get those skills. So I think that perhaps that has shifted in, in, in the years. But, you know, when I look at my team today, you know, m- many of the motivations are the same. The, the first thing is you know everybody has to have a purpose in, in whatever job you do whatever role whatever vertically you've got to kind of feel a sense of purpose and a sense that you're contributing to whatever your business is that you're in so everybody needs to have a purpose and but equally you know the, the great thing about vmware is we've got fabulous technology we're a company of innovators and therefore as a technical team which which i lead 
having access to the latest and greatest technologies clearly keeps people, technical people, motivated and interested. But I think the, the most important thing, and it's the thing I focus most of my time and attention on, is kind of two things around career development. What One is everybody needs to have a clear view of their journey, their career journey. And, and, and whilst ownership of your career journey is yours, you know, every individual owns their own career, uh, you know, equally, I have to provide a structure within people can be the best version of themselves to, to whatever level that becomes. So having a clear career path and journey for everybody is important. And then the final bit for me is my, my own company will hate me for saying this, but technology doesn't necessarily differentiate your company or your capability, but your people do. You know, the one absolute differentiator I have in my organization is the quality of my people. And therefore, it's not just technical skills. And, and I've gone off using this term soft skills because they're not soft at all. I call them human skills. What are the human skills that people have to develop to become even more effective in their role? So a focus not just on the technology, uh, you know, a focus on those kind of human skills as well. And, and I think finally, there's a real analogy, I think, between being on the vendor side as, as a product company, equally every IT organization out there on the other side are equally product companies. We deliver product to our businesses. And I think there's a, a growing analogy and a growing set of, of similar skills on both sides of the fence. So you know, increasingly product managers is a role that on a consumer IT department would never have existed historically, but does today. So I think there's lots to learn between the, the two sides of the organization. If any of that made sense, Matthew, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it does. And and actually, we've just been talking about this sort of topic around the, the kind of purpose. Why do people choose to work where they work? And exactly as you said, you know, it used to be the cool kids went to technology firms in banks. I say the cool kids, one group of cool kids, because that's where the big budgets were to spend on really innovative and, and amazing things. And I think the next bit to that is having done all of that, the problem that that's now caused is a huge run the bank issue that all of that stuff that was really cool back then is now called legacy and is now kind of like weighing down the ability to react and do all the new cool stuff. So, you know, the, that then kind of brings you into you've got to retain people to look after those what were the coolest systems around. You just saying earlier that uh, you've got some assemblers still running in production. I think that kind of proves the point, right? So, well, in, in, indeed, yes. You know, I think that, that's why my defining moment might yet come. You know, <laughs> those, those, those assembler skills might be <laughs> sought Colin's, after and valuable again one day. Colin's right? still on the call-out tree. That's what he's worried about. <laughs> he's worried that someone's going to phone him at four o'clock in the morning and say, "Can you recompile that code for me?" I, I think it's a really interesting observation. I think there's a couple of things. I think that absolutely. We all went into industry, into financial services at a time when it was radically changing. It wanted to do things in a very strange way. It mirrors what's occurring now. But there was no alternative. If you wanted to go into an organisation that was forward-looking and had money to invest, banking and oil and gas tended to be the way people went. Now, I think there's a lot more choice. And I think there's a, a social element to where people want to go. And do they really want to go and work for banks? Is, is banking the right career from a technologist perspective? Particularly when that legacy question crops up, when most of the job that these people will be doing is maintaining that legacy, it isn't really changing. It, you know, if you look at some organisations, their developers, you know, community will spend you know, probably at least fifty percent, if not closer to seventy percent, in some organisations, will be supporting code that's old. 
they won't be creating new stuff. That's the job. So that, I do think it's a challenge in all industries to attract talent into the organisation now for lots of different reasons, technology, investment, social, cultural, etc. And then retaining them because inevitably, I mean, we have great programmes, everyone has great programmes, but if you develop these people, then they leave. You know, so it's, it's, it is a challenge. A, a question for you, Colin, and very much around that people view. You know, over the past couple of years, pandemic aside, you know, is there anything that significantly changed in the way that we can attract people into organisations or we can retain people in, into organisations? What's new? And and the, the other side of that coin, I'm going to ask you too. You know, what what do you see changing in the future to to address that? Yeah, I think the future talent debate is a fascinating one. And you know, it, it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about is building sustainability into my own team. So where's the next generation solution engineering talent that will take VMware and my organization? And, and, and there is no doubt. So, you know, I have my own graduate program. I've, I've just launched actually this week my first apprenticeship program in, in my organization. And, and it's fascinating it's fascinating bringing that new talent into the organization because their expectations, their attitudes are very different. And uh, I don't underestimate the privilege we have as, as kind of VMware and the work that we do that through the COVID pandemic, we've continued. A lot of organizations have been very, very seriously impacted. But, you know, we've been relatively lucky in being able to continue to operate normally. And, and But one of the things it's taught us, Brian, you know, over the last couple of years is uh, how to do the job remotely. We've always been a, a relatively flexible workforce because a lot of our time is is obviously spent with our customers and with our partners and having those conversations. So we were never an office-based culture in the first place. But the, the one thing it's really taught us is is how to do what I call digital pre-sales, digital solution engineering. So a lot of the planning uh, is going on to how do we industrialize that digital experience that we can deliver. So there's no doubt that our working practices will never be the same in many senses. And that will be attractive. That will be attractive to the next-gen workforce who who want more flexibility and expect more flexibility, probably more importantly, going, going forward. And I, and I think that's, for FS firms, that, that's especially challenging because an awful lot of the business units within FS companies are historically been very office-based and, and office functions. And, uh, you know, they it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. I guess just the, the other thing I just wanted to touch back on, you know, back on my reflection is that, you know, FS companies historically, and, and, I, and I remember a really good story. I, I used to, uh, before I joined VMware, I worked for another software company and we were the fourth largest software company in the world. But one of the UK banks had more software engineers than us, you know. So there was always a great, for FS, there was always a, Commercial off-the-shelf software is not what we need because we're special, we're different. We'll go build our own, develop our own, or we'll take an application and add huge amounts of customization. I think that's a, another thing that will change over, is changing, but will need to change that FS companies need to focus on their core, core business, not on, not, not on becoming software companies. That's not their business. Anyway, I just wanted to kind of go back to that because I think it's another, another reflection on my past. You know, we used to build everything bespoke. There's a balance to that now. Yeah, actually, there's a whole thread in here, I think. I'm not sure whether it was me that said that to you, um, uh, because I know I do remember at one point observing that we had more developers than Microsoft, but they had more lawyers than us. But I, you know, I think time has changed. But I, I think also, though, is when when you talk to a lot of firms about how many developers they have, they include everybody that's part of the development organisation irrespective of whether they're writing code or not, or actually doing technical things or not, the essential for the way that they deliver and manage 
code or those business services. But there's an army of people that are are delivering and maintaining all of that stuff. And I think very much to your point, if you truly transform your organization to make the most of the software or service that you're being provided with, that's got to mean you're doing different things with people and the people have got to be doing different things. So, you know, you'll have seen that within your organization. We've gone from being very heavily data center centric to being, I'm going to say cloud agnostic, but multi-cloud or as Summit said previously, multi-mono cloud. You know, we've got so many choices, plus everything we're doing in end user computing through Workspace ONE, plus everything that we're doing with security. How do you keep your teams up on that technology that's coming through and motivated by that rather than kind of like dragged (laughs) down by it? And um, it's a great question because I I, I seem to spend my whole life saying no to people more often than I say yes around around the skills and enablement piece because you're right. If I kind of look at my team, I I sometimes wonder if their heads are going to explode with the amount of information that I expect them to retain, Not, not just around our own technology, but competitors' technology, market conditions, vertical knowledge, you know, the whole bunch of things that uh, people need. And and back to one of my earlier points, all of that on top of the bit that actually makes the difference, which is the human skills, you know, and because uh, that, that's the bit that really makes the difference, makes people the best version of themselves. So so you're right, the way I try and manage that, that is because we, you know, even within my organisation, we had different roles, we have different versions, we have specialists, we have more generalists, we have people focused around partners, so I tend to try and address this by having kind of competency models and matrices of, of expected levels of knowledge of, of various things. But you're right. I think that there's a real balance. It's a fine balance that I walk every day of, of both making sure they're current, but equally relevant skills to, to their role. But, but, you know, the great thing is, you know, I've got a team of technologists. They love technology. So they're like sponges. Certainly on the technical side, they, uh, they have a huge appetite and, and capabilities it seems to me to be able to absorb you know all of the technical stuff that we need them to understand so uh, they kind of make the life easy but it's a balance you know, it's finding that balance between the skills to make them effective and the skills that you need them to do so uh, it's not easy it's not easy or straightforward that's for sure and uh, sometimes you just have to say no <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess when we talk about skills and programs what's your view on what works in those programs you've talked about grad you've talked about apprentices is is there a formula is there something that you've seen that inside our own organization or outside that you wish you could mimic what do you think really works yeah it kind of le- leads on to a bit of work we're doing in in the uk to uh, you know because what one, one of the ironies of our industry is that we're actually all suffering a huge skill shortage we have more open positions that we can get to fill them and you know that's a little ironic when you see that the number of unemployed computer science graduates coming out of our universities you know those two things don't quite quite seem to marry up so there's something not quite right in the way we teach the the necessary skills to make people work ready is the way I put it and so there's an organization in the UK called Tech Skills UK which I'm a board representative for VMware on and what one of the things we identified around taking degree programs specifically so going back about 13 years 13 14 years ago one of the things we identified that the things being taught in our universities and on your traditional computer science degree courses were, were, were too technical and too theoretical. The graduates coming out of those programs weren't work ready. And 
And when we sat down as a bunch of employers, we we defined, so what does that mean? What, what are the skills that industry needs from our next generation of talent? And we created some kind of unique degree courses and, and lots of degree apprenticeships now that, that start to, they're, they're employer-led in that we, we define the learning outcomes that the universities then teach against, which is a very different model to, to the kind of historic university model. And really, we're just teaching that broader set of skills. So yes, you need to understand computer science and the theory and coding and those types of things. But equally... As we all know, having been through FS companies, you've got lots of programs and projects. You need project and program management skills to be able to implement anything in an FS or, or any other organization. You need a lot of those human skills, teamwork, negotiation skills, communication skills, and all those sorts of things that, that make you useful in the workplace. So we've kind of created some degree programs that, that make people more employable coming out of the university. And, and that's had huge success. You know, I think it's you know, the employability, 100% of those graduates through those degrees are employed within six months of graduating. There's 90% of them get first class or two, one degree. So, you know, we're seeing huge success from where industry gets involved with academia to redefine the kind of education system. And arguably, we need to go even younger. We need to go down to to, to A-levels and those, those levels. But as employers of tech skills, whichever side of the fence you're on, it's incum- incumbent on us, I think, to to help academia teach more relevant skills so that we can plug this gap, which makes no sense in many senses. So I think it's just that that broadness of making people more workplace ready, because it's not just about coding. IT is not just about coding. There's a lot of other skills you need to develop to make you really, really useful in your career. So it's work in progress, but we're definitely seeing some signs of success. So that Tech Skills UK then, it sounds like you're getting in early enough in the process to form that outcome. So how many FS firms are in that with you? Uh, none. No, no, seriously, how many? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of poking the FS bear. But, you know, when I look at the, the makeup of the board and, and you've got a really a really nice mix of the supply side. So the likes of, sort of VMware and AWS or uh, Capgemini's Deloitte's of this world are, are on the board. You've equally got people on, on the consumer side uh, of, of IT. And it's not just big businesses. There's a lot of SMEs because... There's more people work in IT roles in SME companies than the big corporate. So the SME organizations are well represented. But the, the glaring gap for me is financial services. And I don't claim to know why they're not engaged. And perhaps as Tech Skills UK, we should do a better job of trying to get them engaged. But at the moment, you know, they're not part of the conversation that we're having anyway. And uh, Well, I wonder, I'm going to say it with a bit of a smile, but I wonder whether that goes back to the, the comment we had earlier about where well, they're so big, they can do it for themselves. But clearly, they're missing out on an opportunity to influence the academia. Well, they're actually missing out on a much bigger thing because the the graduates that come through these programs are outstanding. So they're, they're missing out on the best talent. That, that's the biggest reason to be engaged in these types of programs is that the talent is immense. So I, I would argue that's the biggest benefit is uh, or biggest loss by not being involved. So. I'll be more provocative. I think it's because they don't want the graduates. <laughs> no, no I, I'm going because they don't want the resource in the UK. I'll be more provocative. If you look at where most of these organisations run their development shots from, it's it's not UK based anymore. So they won't want to hire grads in the UK. But here, but here's the thing, Brian. Which is no, you, you're right. But here, that's why the the benefit is even bigger. You know, because because you know, I've always been even representing VMware. We don't do our development in the UK either. And yet, you know, we're huge beneficiaries. So the roles that we do have are even more demanding of these broader sets of skills. 
you know, so 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 I, I would argue that it's an even bigger reason to be involved. But uh, oh, well, you're right. Interesting. That is an emotive topic for me. So I'll um, I'll get back in my little bottle. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and squeeze back in. So uh, okay. So thinking about the people that are going through the university system. Does this also give us the opportunity to try and address some of the source of the DNI kind of thing? You know, is it giving us an opportunity to encourage a more diverse future workforce? Because I think if we make it sound enticing, cool and and valid and valuable and there's purpose early enough, we've got an opportunity to attract more people and different types of people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, just some statistics from our degree programs. So the degree programs we formed, so the the average and just taking gender is one. It's only one aspect of diversity, I I understand, but it's the the one that we're allowed to measure. But if I look at diversity, the average diversity on a computer science degree course is 15% female versus male. Our our two degrees that we formed as employers uh, were up to 35%, you know, so significant difference. And when I look at my apprentice and my grad program, we're at 50-50, because even if I, if I kind of look at my graduate program, I don't dictate what degree you had to join the program. It doesn't have to have been computer science at all. It can be anything you like, because we're hiring for personality as much as we are for uh, technical knowledge. So when I look at, uh, you know, what I passionately believe to be the future of, of this, which is degree apprenticeships. So a, a degree apprenticeship is where you're employed during the period. We do it in consultation with a university. So you do your three or four years, you get a full degree at the end of it, you get paid whilst you're doing it, and you've got no debt. You know, why would you not do a degree apprenticeship? It's, a, it's just such a no-brainer for everybody. So I, I think that's the next generation. But, you know, we're definitely seeing a, a big shift in in diversity in, in those programs. So it's a good good shout-out, Matthew. So, yes, it's, a, it's definitely the way we uh, we pivot on, on some of this stuff. So, Colin... Your folks are heavily involved in lots, and, and they're, they're at the front end of lots of conversations with their FSI customers. What are your thoughts on what's occurring in transformation within FSI? My goodness, that's a, that's a big question, Brian. And I, I don't claim to, I claim don't claim to be the expert. I, I think a bit more broader uh, around this, and it's kind of back to my earlier point in that transformation is happening in every industry. FS used to be so predominantly technology-led that you know, every other organization is, is doing the same. And so I think the challenge, and it's kind of, it is a skills thing, you know, the, the challenge for FS is how do you attract the, the right talent to help drive that FS transformation when there's lots of other industries that are going through equally interesting looking transformations. But, you know, FS is such a broad church as well. You know, let's face it, you've got investment, you've got retail, you've got all sorts of segments within FS. So FS is such a broad term. But at the centre of, of all these transformations is the customer. You know, I think quite often in IT, we, we start at the bottom and work our way up. You know, the, uh, there, is, there is no doubt that every digital transformation, especially in FS, you, you've got to look through the eyes of the customer. And I think that's the challenge is how do you become incredibly customer focused and customer centric? And how do you differentiate your offer, especially in retail banking, when it's so easy to switch? There's no loyalty left, you know, in uh, in many senses, you know, I feel a bit of the outlier where I've been with the same bank forever. You talk to the next, the younger generation, and that's uh, they just look at me as if I'm strange. So, I think that's the challenge in FS is that customer intimacy and customer centricity, and how do you genuinely differentiate your offer whilst having all that legacy? I think kind of Matthew touched on earlier on. So, uh, wow, that is so much 
to uh, to think about. I think Brian, we've done it again. You know, we have to listen back and, and add that to the, the talk track we have uh, with customers. So, Colin, thank you for that. Let's move on and uh, let's go to our crystal ball. I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have? A crystal ball? What's going to happen? Listen, if you know something, you got to tell me. Okay, so, you know, we've covered lots and lots of ground already, but you know, what do you think would be one of the most significant game-changing technologies or approaches, you know, for, for 2021 and beyond? And how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? Oh, if only I did have a crystal ball, that would be, um, <laughs> be a wonderful thing. So uh, I think the only thing about predicting the future is you're guaranteed to be wrong, I always think. So, uh, and in some senses, I, I often think that IT, you know, it's such a dynamic industry, which keeps us all interested and, and employed. But I, I sometimes think that uh, there's nothing new in IT. And, and when I think about the future, you know, the asset, the golden asset of IT is data. And this is coming from an infrastructure guy, so it's probably the wrong thing to say. But but um, you know, I, I think that's the the crown jewels of F- FS and pretty much every other organisation is data related and what you do with your data. And, and back to my earlier point around customer centricity, I think that the more in the future you can focus and, and customise your offer to the individual that's accessing your services, the uh, you know the more differentiated and valuable you'll become. So for me, da- data is you know d- data is the crown jewels and data is the thing that will will help help you genuinely survive in the future. And so you know, I think, um, and you've probably had this answer a million times before, but, you know, I think AI is a real game-changing technology as we start to learn what more we can do with, with, with data. And, and back to my skills thing, you know, one of the latest degree apprenticeships we've, we've just approved is data science as a, as a very specific call out in that area. So so I think, you know, d- data science and, and AI technology is, is fascinating and is equally a game changer in the infrastructure space. So, you know, I think there's a, a, a transformation can go on in the, the next generation data center. Uh, we'll, we'll have a lot more AI workloads running on very specific technology in the future. So it's for, probably a very boring answer, but I, I think AI is transformative. And uh, whether it's in fraud analysis, fraud detection, customer experience, there's a whole bunch of insight locked up in data that we don't even know about yet. And I think that's a fascinating area going forwards on, on the infrastructure side as well. So, you know, a lot of the work we're doing with people like NVIDIA is really, really interesting. I think that's quite a safe one to have gone for. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you said, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. You know, I think uh, that that one's a hard one to get wrong. The way they're stacking up, absolutely. It, you know, it's all about data. So um, I don't know that we're meant to critique the crystal ball thing, Brian, but I, I think that's a um, no, please don't. That's a great one. We, we we can admire it and we can polish it, and then of course, oh, there what we can go. Happen is, <laughs> what can happen is when when something happens, we can say, look, actually, we were ahead of the ball, so we spoke to Colin, and what Colin said was <laughs> this. <laughs> there we go. There we go. And hey, I, I'm a little bit biased on this because I, I, two two of my children are, are data scientists, and and uh, their, their job just seems way more interesting than mine. <laughs> <laughs> all right we get involved in they get involved in projects that i'm thinking my that sounds really cool <laughs> wow there you go and i bet it's not for banking right well one of them is one of them is all to do with, oh, all, all to okay. do with fraud detection and analysis so even that even that sounds cool so believe it or not <laughs> you've used the word fraud and cool yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first right you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 Right, we might get some more listeners. Oh, okay. Uh, let's um, let's move on. Let's get to our lightning round. 
Uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to the super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. Fast and Furious, a pass is okay, but we can't promise not to have fun at your expense if you do pass. I'm dreading this bit. I am dreading this bit. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're pussycats with this. We're really fine. Don't, don't you worry. Favourite book or movie? Uh, I'm going to do really long answers. I've <laughs> yeah, don't answer as many questions. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I did a Desert Island Discs podcast recently, and actually this kind of question came up, and uh, my book is Lord of the Rings, because I'm hoping that I'll get to finish it one day. <laughs> First concert or live performance you ever went to see? This kind of goes back to my roots. I was born and born and raised in, in Kingston, Jamaica, which is the, the, the boring fact about me. But, but my, my parents moved back to the northeast and Lindisfarne was my first ever live concert I went to in Newcastle City Hall many, many, many years ago. So most people won't have heard of Lindisfarne. So uh, go look them up. They'll be Googling it now, though. <laughs> there we go. There you go. All right. So so uh, what was the last concert or live performance you saw? I'm trying, I'm trying to remember. The last one we went to, I think, was it was Adele at Wembley, I think. That was the last one we attended. Are you a morning person or an evening person? Oh, morning. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Tea. Who is your mentor or who have you been most inspired by? I have one mentor who doesn't work at VMware, but I worked with many years ago. And a guy called Dr. Jim White, who I worked with at a previous company, who I just used to stand and admire. You know, they were just astonishing good at, good at everything they did. And I could never work out why. So uh, I tried to attach myself to Jim and, and mirror many of his skills. So he's taught me a huge amount Actually, the most current one is actually I've got a reverse mentor, which I think is a fascinating. So it's advice I'd give to anybody out there if you if you've never considered having a reverse mentor. So I have a a young female talent in in VMware who teaches me every day. It's possibly even more valuable than a mentor relationship. She's fabulous at challenging my thinking and my understanding of the world. And so having a reverse mentor is, is fascinating, and I can only recommend it to anybody. Great. So I have to, I have to say uh, off off piste slightly. So I went through the Gen V program and I did exactly the same. I've had two reverse mentors as part of my process of uh, being in VMware. It's, and it has been very, very enlightening because uh, I've learned a lot more about the company because they're in completely different roles that I would have never necessarily engaged them. So anyway, we, we carry on. Sorry, Matthew, you'll go. No, no, that's uh, interesting stuff. What piece of career advice do you wish you'd given to your younger self? <laughs> That's too late. Um, so <laughs> it still happened that one bit. Remember, it doesn't happen yet. I think the, the bit, and it, it's something I preach all the time now, because your career is your career. I, I think as I went through my career, I assumed my career was my manager's responsibility, not mine. You know, and that was very, very naive and the wrong approach. So I think taking control and taking ownership of your career is just so important because it is yours. It is not your manager's or anybody else's responsibility. So uh, I, I kind of wish I'd learned that a little bit earlier in my career, but that's. That'd be my one bit of advice to my younger self. My favourite question: You have to sing karaoke. What song do you sing? No, I, 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 I don't. I don't, Brian. I don't have to do anything. But uh, <laughs> I've, I've never done karaoke. I, I, I will inflict my opinion on it on anybody and everybody. I will not inflict my voice on anybody. But uh, but if I had to, if I absolutely had to, and this is because I can't sing and, and wouldn't, but I'd go back to my heritage and say I was born and brought up in. Uh, Kingston, Jamaica. So I'd probably plump for UB40 in Kingston Town. I think we'd probably be my oh, safe choice. When was the last time you used cash and what was it for? Ah, yes. Well, I, I, actually, that, that, this would have been a really tough question if it had been asked a, a few weeks ago because I, I couldn't remember last time I used cash. 
I had to use it two weekends ago in a car parking machine, even though it had a smart app. It was a, uh, despite having four parking machines, smart apps on my phone, this one was another different one. So that's where technology doesn't always work. So rather than install yet another parking app on my phone, I used cash in a parking machine. Yeah. Right. I've been prompted by the crowd to ask the question that we sometimes forget, which is a very odd question, which is, if you were an ice cream, what flavour would you be? Rum and raisin. There was no question on that, was it? Straight in. <laughs> there was no question. I'm straight in, that was. That was. There are some things that, uh, you know, it is absolutely my favourite. So I would definitely be a rum and raisin ice cream. Oh, fabulous. Okay. So I will go for this as my last question. Have you ever been told you look like someone famous and who was it? On a tube journey back from, uh, for, for my sins, I'm in Arsenal season ticket holder. It's very painful at the moment. But uh, I, I was on the tube coming back from an Arsenal game when uh, the, there was two young girls. And I was sat, sat next to my wife and there was two young girls sat opposite saying, I think that's Martin Clunes. Um, um, <laughs> which I can't see at all. For anybody that's ever seen a picture, I, I, I don't know where that uh, where that came from. But, but allegedly, according to these two young girls, I look like Martin Clunes. <laughs> I don't, brilliant. but anyway, there you go. <laughs> well, I, 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 I share your misery as, of being an Arsenal supporter too, Colleen. <laughs> <laughs> and was a, in fact, I was a, well, a season ticket holder. My dad was a season ticket holder many, 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 many moons ago when they, before they moved to the Emirates. Um, okay, I, I'm, I'm done with my questions. I can't, can't top Martin Clunes, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, thank you so much for your, your time today. It's been really very, very interesting. And uh, I think there's plenty of us, plenty for us to think about there, including whether there's a likeness to Martin Clunes. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Great, great Thank session. Thank you so much. Thank you. To keep up with Colin and to read some of the blogs he's written on finding a career path, please follow him on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll have links in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please talk with your VMware account team. Or you can connect with us on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can also follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or our podcast on Twitter at DBTBpod. And you can find our show notes at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. If you like our podcast and could leave us a review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that'd be really appreciated. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or would wish to appear as a future guest, please do get in touch. We hope you can join us again next time. Please do take care. <laughs>